Oh, it's such a long pause. Sometimes it takes forever. Well, I'd like to welcome you to the City Temple live stream and to a recording of our sermon today. This is just a part of our entire worship service. And if you would like to join us, either in person or via Zoom for our entire service, please contact us at info at city-temple.com. Once again, we are pleased and honored that Pastor Rod will bring the word of God to us today. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 31. It's just the last verse what we read a couple of weeks ago. And then go into chapter 5, all the way down to verse 11. <clears throat> we often don't realize that what happened in chapter 5 is actually an outgrowth of what was going on here at the end of chapter 4. <clears throat> you might remember, as we read a couple of weeks ago, that uh, Peter and John had been in prison. They came back. There was a prayer meeting. And uh, as the outcome of that prayer meeting was there, uh, there in verse 31. Before we read, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you uh, speak to us through your word today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest on me, that I might bring your word to your people through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, it's been quite an adventure, I think, that we've been on the last year and a half with this whole pandemic thing. Uh, it's been a surprise, but in a sense, it's not been a surprise. And I think one of the things that has really been revealed through the pandemic, which maybe has been a bit of a surprise, a surprise in that maybe a lot of people haven't realized how it's been revealed. One thing that's been revealed is how important the church of Jesus Christ really is. Not only here in our nation, but all around the world, how the church has reached out and helped so many people, but also how the church has been such a rallying point for community, for people to have connection, for people to have a link with one another, as well as with God. And so we've seen that there is a need for the church. That people really do need the body of Christ. That we need one another. And that's everybody from, you know, the, the, the leaders uh, to, uh, you know, people like in the pews, to, to every believer in Christ, we need the church. I know I would not be here if it wasn't for this church and the fact that you guys committed yourselves to praying for me and you interceded and you persevered in that intercession. It was a clear demonstration of how much I need the church and how much we all need the church. And God has also been refining the church of Jesus Christ during this season. And there's going to be a lot of churches that will end up closing their doors. Uh, a lot of churches that really weren't much of a church at all because they weren't really organized around Jesus Christ. But then there are others that will continue for a season, but at the same time the whole pandemic has shown the weaknesses and vulnerabilities in the way that they've organized themselves and the way that they've conceived of themselves as the body of Christ. But the point is that the world right now, our nation right now, our city right now needs the church of Jesus Christ. And we need not just your bog standard churches of Jesus Christ, we need great Christian communities as never before. We need great Christian communities. 
Yet I think the irony or the sad thing, and, and frankly my heart has really been greatly troubled for a number of months now. And my heart's been troubled even the last 24, 48 hours. It's been so troubled, I was so upset and so sad and so angry and so many emotions churning within me. You know, so deeply, deeply troubled. I even wondered if I was going to be able to come today. I've been burdened because at the very same time that we've discovered that the Lord has revealed the importance of great Christian churches, great Christian communities, at the same time, we still have people who call themselves Christians, and many of whom really are Christians, who are rejecting the church, who are rejecting Christian communities. And they do that for a lot of different reasons. Some of them might seem, well, almost all of them seem to be good to people at the time. You know, as Solomon said, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but the way leads only to death. Or as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so you have a lot of people rejecting the church for a lot of seemingly good reasons. Just at the time when our nation, our city, our world needs great Christian churches. They've really fallen victim to the problems that Ananias and Sapphira had. But I get ahead of myself. Because I think this passage tells us a lot of what it takes to have great Christian communities. And that's really been the challenge here a lot, hasn't it? Because uh, this time has forced us to do things we never thought we would do. Uh, like I always wanted to do uh, online church. I wanted to have that as, as a possibility for people. But I probably would have dithered uh, on, in an ongoing kind of way unless the lockdown happened and kind of forced us to do things differently. You know, but is it, you know, having a good Zoom presence or a good YouTube presence or a good Facebook presence or online presence, is that what makes a great Christian community? Well, the clear answer for that is no, because if that's what it took to have a great Christian community, we couldn't have had great Christian communities for the last 2,000 years. So what is it, you know? Is it a big worship band? Is that what it takes to make great Christian communities? Well, I have to tell you the answer to that is no. Because worship bands like we have, that's a pretty modern invention. Now, most churches didn't have those 40 or 50 years ago. In fact, there's still many places like up on the Isle of Lewis where much of their singing is done without any instruments at all. And I have to tell you, it's awfully refreshing to know that you could go on holiday and not have to get a replacement drummer and a replacement pianist, a replacement bass player, uh, and a replacement uh, uh, organist or uh, trombonist or whatever else you have in your worship band. Well, obviously, great Christian communities, it's not about 
having the great worship band. Because there have been a lot of great Christian communities that never had an instrument playing. In fact, the early church was against instruments, uh, primarily because instruments in those days were mostly used in pagan worship. And so they thought, well, maybe we shouldn't bring drums into the church when people are used to dancing naked to drums, you know. There's a little issue there. Uh, so is it, you know, uh, very popular preachers? Is that what it takes to make great Christian communities? Uh, and and that's, the answer to that's no. Uh, you know, some churches do quite well without any preacher, a central preacher. I don't want to give you guys any hints here. Okay, so don't take anything from this. But uh, so what is it? What makes great Christian communities? Well, I think we see a glimpse here, and we see five things that are key. Now, you can go back to Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, again, that's a great passage that we always have to look at because that, that passage tells us what Christians do together, what churches do together. You know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread, like we're going to do today, and to the prayers. And those are essential things that we need to be doing as the church. That's the core of what we do as a church. Those things. Devoting ourselves to those things. Here in, in Acts chapter 4 and into 5, we see five other characteristics, or four other characteristics that come to the front for great Christian communities, great Christian churches. The first one is, I'd say, great generosity. Great generosity. Now the text says that they were there, they were all together, they were kind of of one mind and one spirit. Now what does that mean? It, it's not talking just about unity. Now a lot of times we talk about unity in that context, saying they were completely united in the way they thought, uh, you know, they had the same opinion about everything. And that's, that's not true. That's never been true in the history of the church, by the way. It's never been true. You know, there's always been a diverse, diversity of opinions. You know, there's been some people that prefer green carpet and some people that prefer red carpet and some people that prefer blue carpet. And that's not all that important. What this means when it says that they were together, they were open to one another. Their hearts were open. Their hands were open. Their minds were open. They were generous in spirit toward one another. They weren't rejecting one another. They were accepting one another, especially in all of their differences and their diversity. Sounds a bit like City Temple. So the great generosity meant that they were generous in spirit toward one another. It also meant that they were serving one another. That they were going out of their way to help one another. That doesn't mean that they all of a sudden had all of these different levels of committees and things like that. That's not how they operated. People just saw what needed to be done, and they did it. People saw ways that they could help out, 
and they chose to do it. Again, it's another thing I love about our church. People are doing this all the time to one another, publicly, privately. It's a great thing. So they were serving one another. Their great generosity also manifested in that they were sharing with one another. They were sharing with one another financially. From time to time, what would happen is somebody would, maybe they had a field or uh, you know, an extra house uh, that they didn't need, and so they would go and they'd sell it, and then they'd take the money and they'd put it at the apostles' feet, meaning that they just surrendered it to the apostles. Now this doesn't mean that the apostles took it and then bought a nice house on the coast for their you know, international ministry. They didn't do that. They were in charge of making sure that the money was used and distributed fairly. And when the job got too big for them, which it did in Acts chapter 6, they appointed other people to do that just to make sure that everything was distributed so that people had their needs met. Remember, this was a time as well when they didn't have social care. So the elderly, the people who couldn't take care of themselves, the widows, you know, they would have some, an offering that would be given to them to help meet their needs. So this is the kind of thing that they were doing. They were sharing with one another financially in a very generous way. By the way, it's another thing I love about our church. People do this at City Temple. You don't know most of what happens. You will never know 90% of the stories of how people have just reached out and helped one another financially in a time of need, a time of crisis. That happens. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. Now, we need to understand this, this was not communism. You know, it was not a form of communism where all of a sudden everybody, you know, shared the means of production was owned by the apostles uh, for the benefit of her. That's not communism. It also was not communal. The people weren't living together in a commune where they sold all their stuff and they emptied their bank accounts and they put it into one large communal bank account. And so often we read the texts in scriptures, we read these texts and we idealize them and we must not do that because this is not idealistic. How do you know that it's not idealistic? You know it because of what Peter said to Ananias. He said, Ananias, before you sold the property, it was yours. It was at your disposal. And after you sold the property, the money belonged to you. You could have done whatever you wanted to with that money. So this was not some kind of commune where they were sitting around in their sandals, uh, you know, with their long hair and everything that you kind of, uh, kind of envision a bit with Jesus Christ Superstar or something like that. It's not an idealistic thing, but it definitely was what we'd call communitarian, which means that they prioritize the community. It was their family, every bit as real as their natural family. So great Christian communities, great Christian churches, have great generosity in this way. 
one of the great things I love about City Temple, but it's true of any great Christian church, it's going to have great generosity. And some do and some don't. And it doesn't matter how big you are or how small you are. I've seen some very large churches that would completely fail on this, even though they have millions and millions and millions of pounds. And I've seen some very small churches that would exceed churches with millions and millions and millions of pounds in proportion to their giving. So that's the first element of a great Christian community, great Christian church. They have great generosity. Second element here is they had great power. They had great power. Now I have to say up front, this is an area where we fall most of the time at City Temple. We have had seasons in the life of our church of great power where we've seen sick people healed, we've seen miracles done, we've seen demons fleeing, and we've having, you know, but it ebbs and flows a bit. And I want it to flow a lot more than it does. And I'll give you a secret for that at the end. But great Christian churches have great power. A great power manifested for them in first in signs and wonders. Miracles were happening. Now again, we must not idealize this. This was not idealistic. It's not like they went over to St. Bart's and cleared the hospital. That wasn't happening. That wasn't even happening in Jesus' time. Understand, not every single person was healed. Not every day did a miracle occur. But on many days, they occurred. And largely, they were being done by the apostles, done through the apostles, but that very quickly changed, and they started to be done by more and more people. You see that with Stephen. You see that with Philip, the deacons. It starts to spread out, and more and more people, there were signs and wonders being done. Another thing that was a demonstration of their great power was that they spoke the Word of God boldly. They weren't afraid to tell people about Jesus. Now again, we see in the style of speaking, it wasn't you know, some hellfire and brimstone kind of talk that they were giving. They were just testifying Jesus, to His reality, as we've talked about in other passages that we've looked at in this sermon series. But they spoke the Word of God boldly. People's lives were being changed. And thankfully, we continue to see that here at City Temple. But we must remember, this was not metaphorical. It was effective. A lot of times, and you know, I've seen Christians do this all the time, they'll say, oh, well, you know, the power was a metaphor for something else, or we've got a lot of power, uh, but our power is manifested this way or that way. And they look at things and they call out things that aren't really manifestations of power, but it makes them feel better. We don't need to make ourselves feel better. We just face the reality. You know, we don't yet have great power, but I want great power. As a fellowship, I want to see great power. And great power is part of our heritage. 
And great power is something that we're going to see manifesting in a variety of different ways. Because God's called us to be a great Christian church, a great Christian community. So they had great generosity and they had great power. The third thing that they had, according to the text, is great grace. Great grace. Now this grace manifested in a number of different ways. I mean, the grace is manifested in terms of spiritual gifts. They had gifts of the Holy Spirit. The word for spiritual gifts is the Greek word charismata, which literally means little expressions of grace. It's the same word for grace. And so they had great grace. The people in the church were receiving gifts of the Holy Spirit and ministering in gifts of the Holy Spirit in a variety of different ways. Not all of those, by the way, would be speaking gifts, such as preaching or prophecy or speaking in tongues. You know, sometimes it would be serving gifts using the twofold uh, characterizations that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 4. They'd be serving gifts, gifts like gifts of help, mercy, uh, leadership, any number of other gifts. But the people had gifts of the Holy Spirit as signs of great grace. They also had spiritual friendship and magnanimity. As I said, they were open to one another. They had a generous spirit with one another. And frankly, when you have a generous spirit toward other people, it's almost impossible not to have other friends. Now, not everybody is going to have a friendship with you. Not everybody's going to receive your generosity your open spirit. And that's okay. And I know that. And it really hurts when people don't. Well, we've had a lot of folks like that at City Temple. People who come in, people that, that we show a lot of warmth, a lot of love, a lot of hospitality. They come in and they feel a connection. And sometimes they are connected for a while and then they end up going off. Sometimes they get angry and they storm off. Sometimes they just wander off. Uh, sometimes they take offense at something, you know, you, you don't know. And it's really tempting sometimes, isn't it? Just to say, you know, I'm not going to be open to anybody else. Because people hurt, you know. I heard a pastor one time say that he finally understood why, you know, the pastors were called shepherds and why, you know, the shepherds always had those staffs. He said, because the sheep bite. No, and sometimes that happens. You open your, your heart to somebody and it, they bite. But you keep opening yourself up because you're going to have great grace and God has given us great grace and God has welcomed us and when you know how God's welcomed you and forgiven you and how much grace He's poured out in your life, then you can't help but share that grace with other people. And great Christian churches have great grace. And we need to understand this is not something that's sentimental. We're not talking about some wishy-washy sentimentality, you know, where I look at somebody and say, oh, I love you, man. Oh, you know, I just see you and my heart's all a tingle. You know, what we're talking about here is something that's gritty, something that's real, something that hurts sometimes. And yet you embrace the pain and you live in that great grace. You continue with that great grace. 
Excuse me. Sorry about that. Apologies for all that. Now the fourth characteristic of great Christian communities I think is probably the one that's going to surprise you. Because we almost never think about it or talk about it. The fourth characteristic, according to the passage we read today, of great Christian communities is great fear. Great fear. Now we can, sometimes we try to make fear more of a metaphor, right? Uh, But actually, the word for fear here means what the word for fear means in English. Something where you could be actually quite terrified. Now, it's a bit like dealing with police. You know, especially an armed police officer. I've seen it. It's it's kind of fun uh, to watch people here in the UK who are used to the fact that police don't carry guns to suddenly encounter a police officer who has one of those machine guns. People start getting a little nervous and, you know, is there something bad going to happen? And it's almost like I'm afraid that they might shoot me. Now, of course, the police officer could shoot you, but the likelihood is probably not very great that they're going to shoot you. But still in all, it's probably a wise thing to have a bit of respect and honor and fear of that gun. You know, we don't bound up to the police officer and say, excuse me, sir, can I shoot your, can I shoot your machine gun in the air a little bit? I've never done that before. I'd like to see what it's like. Uh, or, you know, I've got a couple of neighbors that I'd like to show how powerful this is. You know, you, you don't do that, right? Why? Because there's a certain fear that we have that if we do something really foolish, if we make a really big mistake, something unpleasant is going to happen to us. And a lot today, honestly, in churches, there's not a whole lot of fear. There was a day when there was some fear, maybe justified, not justified, when uh, maybe there was only one church in the community and you could get excommunicated, and being excommunicated from the church uh, had also a lot of other implications for you. But these days, nobody fears excommunication. Because you get excommunicated, you just go to another church. Don't even tell them you've been kicked out of the first one. They ask you, you say, well, I've been going to the church for a while. I went to another church. And you skip the one you just got kicked out of. This happens all the time. We've seen it. Now, we've seen, I saw it years ago in my first church. So, So there's not a whole lot of fear anymore. Yet maybe it's something that we need to regain. Because a lot of times we just don't understand it. And we see the manifestation of fear in both Barnabas and Ananias. But how they responded to it and how they lived in that reality was vastly different. So here you have Barnabas. 
what does he do? His name is Joseph, but like everybody's name was Joseph. It was like the most popular name of the day. So it would be like having, you know, 30 people in the church named Joseph. Uh, or it'd be a little bit like when we go up to the Isle of Lewis. I've always said, if you go up to the Tesco in the Isle of Lewis, and I said, hey, Angus, about uh, a third of the men in the Tesco would turn and look at me. And if I said, hey, Donald, about another third would turn and look at me. And if I said, hey, John, then that would get me, you know, another, maybe another third, and then you got 1% of everybody else. I mean, those names are so repeated that many people go by two names or by their initials. You know, so, so that's why, you know, so Joseph was like that in the day. And so they say, okay, we're going to call you Barnabas. You know, because that means son of encouragement, and that's the kind of guy you were. And so Barnabas, here he is, he's a business leader. He's reasonably wealthy. We know that because here he is in Jerusalem. He's traveled from Cyprus where he's a native. He's a Levite, which means that he was uh, uh, highly revered uh, in Jewish culture. But he's also wealthy enough that he has property in Cyprus as well as property there in Jerusalem, enough that he can take a field that he had and sell the field and bring it at the disciples' feet, uh, lay it at the disciples' feet. And for Barnabas, this became, this, this fear, this respect, if you will, became a doorway to greater influence and effectiveness. Because he had it. Because he lived in accordance with it. It was a doorway to greater influence and effectiveness. And you see what he does, he sacrifices his autonomy as a wealthy person. Now he could have come, I mean think about this, Peter, who was leading at the time, he's a fisherman. He's not a wealthy business owner. He's not the kind of person that people in upper-class Jewish society in Jerusalem necessarily would have looked up to. Barnabas could have easily come and said, listen, uh, let me tell you guys how to run this thing uh, because I've got a lot of experience. But he doesn't do that. He takes all of it and surrenders that autonomy and submits to the leaders and to the community by selling this field and laying it at the disciples' feet. And through that becomes one of the most influential people in Christian history. A lot of times we might think that that is the Apostle Paul, right? Because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Hmm, pardon me. But you know, who brought Paul to Antioch? It was Barnabas. Who, along with Paul, funded the early missionary journeys? It was Barnabas. And you might think, well, you know, Paul and Barnabas had to fight later on, right? And they split up. And so maybe that shows that Paul was a little bit wiser, uh, a little bit stronger than Barnabas was. And, but remember who they fought over? They fought over John Mark. 
And by the end of Paul's ministry, he's working with John Mark again. And John Mark is helping him, which shows you that Barnabas was right all along and, Mark, and, and Paul was not about their whole dispute that caused them to split up. So here you have a man who, because of the holy fear that he had in respect of the community, in respect of the leaders, in respect of God and the power of God, that became a doorway to greater influence so that you could argue that Barnabas was one of the most influential people in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, yet he is not the one you normally think about. Then that's contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they do not have any fear whatsoever. There's no fear at all in them. They don't have great fear like Barnabas did. Because if they did, they wouldn't have done what they did. And what they did led to their literal death. Now, I believe that they were followers of Jesus. I mean, some might disagree, but I believe that they were Christians. I believe I'll probably see them in heaven. Uh, but I believe that they'll be filled with regret. Because not only was it a physical death, it was also the death of their ministry, the death of their influence, the death of their hopes, the death of their future. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people in the body of Christ who don't have an appropriate fear of the things of God, who don't have an appropriate fear of the holiness of the community of God's people in Jesus Christ, who don't have a holy respect of leaders, and I'm not talking about myself. I don't care if people respect me or not, frankly. I got everything I need from the Lord. And so I'd say, if you ever hear me say, touch not the Lord's anointed, and, I, and I'm talking about me, slap me. Just right there, just slap me. Because that's such a clear indication I'm not the Lord's anointed, so I need to be touched. And I say that with humor, but I mean it as well so you know so they had no fear and so what did they do they do this thing now we often think oh what's the big deal they lied to the holy spirit but that's not all that it was if that was all that it was then i mean how can you lie to the holy spirit because the holy spirit knows everything right so what were they doing they wanted to be a recognized, affirmed, cherished part of the community, but at the same time, they wanted to maintain their personal autonomy. They basically wanted to do what they wanted to do, but make it seem like that they were really engaged with the body of Christ, with the church. That they were worthy of leadership in the church, just like everybody else, that they were fully committed. And so because of this, they hold back what they had dedicated to God. 
They didn't have to dedicate it. It was theirs. But after saying, God, I'm giving this to you, I'm committing this before you, then they decide to hold it back. And that's a real danger. That's a real danger. It's one of the reasons why we take membership in City Temple so seriously. Because if you say, hey, I'm really committed to this church, I'm committed to this expression of the body of Christ, and then you kind of hold everything back, how you've dedicated yourself to the Lord, there's some serious issues there that people need to consider. They were seeking status without sacrifice. They were engaging in a spiritual compromise and pretense before others. And their actions represented Satan trying to infiltrate the body of Christ, the community of God's people, especially through hypocrisy and greed. And this is why it was so severe. They had no holy fear before God. They did not have the great fear of Barnabas. They had no fear of a person playing with God, thinking that they're God's equal, thinking that they can do whatever they want to, and God doesn't care. One of the most powerful books that I ever read, and you can't get it anymore. I still have it in my library. I've saved it, although it's probably in storage right now. It's called God is No Fool. God is no fool. He's kind, he's generous, he's loving, he forgives. But he's no fool. He knows when people are playing with him. He knows when people are not being serious. And he takes it very, very seriously. Excuse me. We need to have great fear. Great Christian churches, great communities of faith, they have great generosity. They have great power. They have great grace. And they also have great fear. Not a fear that's crippling. Not a fear that causes them to cower with anxiety. Not a fear that causes them to be afraid that God is going to strike them down and punish them any moment. God's perfect love casts out that kind of fear, according to 1 John. But a fear of knowing that we are dealing with the living God, the creator of the universe. And we are dealing with the people of God. Those for whom Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so, having an appropriate awe and respect and dare I say, great fear seems to be the proper response. So how do we become this great Christian church? I mean, in so many things, we're so strong as a church. Well, how did they become the great Christian church? That's where we need to look. And how they became that great Christian church is through prayer that led to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that the place that they were gathered in 
was shaken. Time and time again, throughout the last 2,000 years of the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, we have seen God's people praying together, earnestly calling out for an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And God pours out His Spirit and creates great Christian churches that reach their communities and their nations in great ways. And that's our calling and that's our destiny as City Temple, as the Church of Jesus Christ. And so let us together, even now, on your own, and when we gather corporately, continue to say, Oh God, pour out your Spirit upon us. Pour out your Spirit that we might have great generosity, great power, great grace, and great fear so that we can be the great church you called us to be for Great Britain and beyond. Father, that's our prayer. That's the cry of our hearts. Hear us. Hear us, O Lord. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we're going to go before.